Few industries inspire passion like sports, but the business of sports has created issues that are too complex for the casual approach that we enjoy in typical sports talk shows. We've developed this podcast to host in-depth conversations about those topics with people who can help us learn. So grab your favorite beverage and join us for Intelligent Sports Talk in the Coffee Pod. All right, well, so today we're joined by Dr. Calvin Knight, a professor here at uh, Texas Tech University. We're very grateful to have him in here, and he's uh, coming in guns a-blazing. He's got strong opinions on what we want to talk about today, which I'm very excited to hear about personally. Uh, on paying college athletes. If you remember a previous episode with uh, Dr. Brian Shannon from the law school law program here, he uh, expressed his own opinions on that matter as well. And uh, Calvin, thank you so much for joining us, or Dr. Knight. Uh, It doesn't matter. (laughs) It's an interesting dynamic because uh, I'm used to getting dunked on by (laughs) Calvin all the time. So Slap glass layups. Exactly. Right. No, I appreciate you having me, man. I'm, I enjoy doing this sort of stuff. Well, good, good. We really appreciate you having uh, having you here as well. And uh, before we get started kind of on the topic of paying college athletes, I kind of want to get your background in here. And obviously, I was looking up some stuff, and uh, I want to I wanna share that with some of our listeners. Uh, Dr. Knight here was uh, played college basketball for uh, Abilene Christian University back in the early 2000s. And you want to kind of maybe talk us through that, kind of that whole process and how what your college experience was like and everything and kind of becoming a doctor, getting your Ph.D. and everything. <laughs> I can do it. Yeah. You know, it was a you – know, I don't want to glamorize it. It's Division Two, And then, you know, my senior year I transferred and played at a D3 school just down the road from Abilene Christian. And so my experiences aren't anywhere comparable to what, you know, we call them big-time college athletes, you know, Division One Texas Tech style um, so, you know, it's, a, it's a kind of an apples to oranges. There was, you know, ours was very much, you know, it felt like a more intense version of high school athletics. You know, we didn't have a lot of media attention. Um, you know, certainly we were on, I was on scholarship and we had time reti- requirements from that. We were, you know, our coaches, you know, grinded us just like, you know, you know, Tubby or whoever, Chris Beard now right. is grinding whoever. You know, we had very similar things to that. We just didn't have the, we didn't have the scrutiny, right? Nobody was talking on message boards about us. Mm-hmm. And this was, I mean, honestly, back before message boards were really even a big deal. Um, so that was, you know, my experiences playing are probably a little bit different than, you know, there. it's a muted version of what, you know, college athletes really, you know, it, who are playing, and we'll call them big time, you know, the ones that are playing on TV right. that are garnering a lot of national attention. Mm-hmm. So that, mine was, you know, I, I I don't really even want to compare it. Yeah, I played. Um, you know, I had a decent run my last couple of years. Uh, but, you know, no, it's not like, I mean, outside of the local media in Abilene and D3hoops.com, nobody even <laughs> probably even knew what I was doing. So, um, yeah. It- it's not necessarily about the comparison necessarily, I would say. I mean, really, more than anything, it's you've had experiences in the athletic, right. being, a, being a college athlete. I mean, that's not many people get to experience that at all in general. Um, 2%. But, what's that? 2%. Yeah, 2%, exactly. And so um, just having you here with your experience I think is great because it's just a dynamic that a lot of people don't understand in right. general. And not to mention, you have a platform and you have an opinion based on these things for that reason. And so it's more just kind of talk about, yeah, you know, your resume sure. and everything. And Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, the you know, I know what we're about to start talking about. And so I'll kind of jump ahead a little bit. You know, the biggest issues that you start seeing is, you know, people, when you get into this idea of whether athletes should be paid or not, is the notion of whether or not they're employees of the university. And, you know, from my experiences, I don't ever feel like I was an employee of the university as much as I was working a full-time job. So I felt like, you know, if I was, if that makes sense, right? right yeah. I, don't, I don't feel like Abilene Christian was paying. If they were, they weren't getting their money's worth, right? <laughs> yeah. um, I don't feel like they were paying us, but I do feel like I had a full-time job all the time. And that's outside of school classes, like attending classes and everything. Yeah, you know, and then, you know, I was fortunate. I mean, the school part was, 
you know, I chose a fairly easy major, which I wouldn't recommend, you know, but I was first generation, had no idea. My dad, was, I was telling my parents, I was like, what do I need, what do I need to major? And they're like, major? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're playing ball. What do you mean? <laughs> exactly. What do you need to major? Major in basketball. <laughs> right. Um, so, but, you know, yeah. So I was lucky that the school came easy to me. And so, you know, and that's, I'm not trying to pat myself. It was just, that was the easiest part right. of it. Um, but once, you know, it was, it was a full time grind. It was always, it was the thing that was preeminent in your mind all the time. And so, you know, the, in that sense, it's probably not that much different. It's just the scrutiny was not there. Right. So, and, and, and scrutiny also, and mixed with kind of like you, like you said, exposure and with exposure comes a lot of money. Exactly. And that's really where the debate gets really hot because even in the last 15 years, we've seen a huge influx of money coming in, especially to college sports because of its popularity. It's just continually on the rise. And one uh, a while ago, I was doing a different podcast with another friend, and our biggest question was, where does that money go? And and Dr. Shannon kind of helped clear some of that up because he said, well, you know, they, they have given money to colleges. Like the NCAA has given money back to kind of help with funding. It specifically talks about kind of an emergency situations with student athletes, like if there's a funeral or and insurance kind of goes into that too as well. They get some of the best insurance. They get physical therapy with that. Um, maybe not. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. But regardless, some money comes back, but it doesn't seem like enough to me. Yeah, you know, that's the big thing. I mean, what is the the answer is, is it enough? There, I mean, there's never enough, right? Right. And you learn that in higher education or in jobs in general. There's never enough money. Um, you know... The biggest issue that we run into when you start talking about paying college athletes and you start hearing the pundits uh, talking about it, the, there's two main equitable issues that you come up with. One, you have coaches' salaries are going through the roof. You know, Nick Saban's making, you know, nine mil. Hell, Kingsbury's making three or four and we're barely winning seven games. <laughs> you know, you see those types of things happening. And while – and then the one of the most – the thing that shed the most light on it was when uh, was it Napier uh, after they won the title said that you know I go to bed hungry at nights yeah and that's where you start seeing some of that change but that's the sort of stuff that people start looking at they're like wait a second there is all this money that's coming in you know we're paying Kingsbury three mil and you know the people who are actually making the money aren't uh, it's not that they're just not seeing it they're restricted from tapping into any of it right um you know, Brian, uh, Dr. Shannon, I have a lot of respect for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I've had conversations with him. we got to remember that he's he's part of the system, right? Right. And so the system in and of itself is going to reproduce itself and it's going to defend itself. So being the faculty athletic rep who is deeply involved with the NCAA, you know, he's going to have his perspective. You know, the fact of the matter is he says that, you know, they have insurance that comes in. Um, that might may be for emergency situations, but the way it actually works is that you have to have your own insurance policy and the university slash NCA, I don't know the creative accounting that they use with it, but it comes through the, the university. Um, you know, you have to have your own insurance and if something happens, your insurance will pay the 80% and cause most insurances are 80, 20 plans and the university will pick up the, the 20. Okay. But you're still paying for your insurance premiums. It's usually not you; it's your parents. Right. And so those types of situations, you know, people start looking at it like, "What? You're hungry? Oh, and you're covering, you're busting your body for this, and you're not, you know, your insurance isn't being covered." And then with the, you know, we're in the enhanced age of understanding chronic injuries, um, most notably concussions. Mm-hmm. You know what happens? You know if you you know, get numerous concussions and experience lifelong issues with that. That's kind of where the, the equitable issue starts coming into, uh, into it, that people start, you know, raising red flags. And that's, that's where it hits me in my mind more is that, you know, you put your body on the line for this and, you know, I know the injuries that I have, I've got, you know, chronic knee issues that, you know, they'll never go away. It's for years of playing ball. You know, I put myself in that situation. I fully understand it. Um, but if there was ever a situation where 
you know, for instance, what's happening with the NFL where there's cover-ups, uh, I think that's where we start getting into real issues. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. And and I, w- I want to kind of touch back on what you you talked about with uh, Shabazz Napier saying he goes to bed hungry at night. I mean, he won a national championship for UConn. We see that. And Arian Foster, there was a big thing coming out with how right. he also said the same thing. He couldn't even afford dinner some nights and – I mean, I don't. I don't mean to make light of that situation. I mean, it really is kind of. It's crazy and it's tragic to think about well, how much money. Another story of that is that Abilene Christian. They got put on probation. Um, they had to sanction themselves because over Christmas, uh, their their track program at the this they were D two at the time still, Division two school uh, has one of the better track programs in the country. They bring in a lot of people from the Caribbean islands and from Africa. Well, they can't afford to go back over Christmas and university dining halls are closed. Well, they had, I'm pretty sure this is, was the story. The details might be a little more fuzzy in there, and it might be a little more sinister than this. So I don't want to, if it is, I don't want to completely absolve that. Right. But, you know, essentially they got put on probation because they provided groceries to their athletes who had to stay over Christmas holidays in Abilene on campus. Uh, impermissible benefit. Right, you know, right. NCA got dinged for it. Um, had to do a you know self-imposed. I think I think they cut scholarships as right. some you pretty know, standard yeah. standard like that. But you know, yeah. No, I going off of that. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I think <coughs> more than anything that needs to be revamped. Even even before you talk about how you're going to distribute how pay works and everything like that, because I think the NCAA comes down with these sanctions and you're just like, where's this coming from? Because I was even talking about this yesterday with a college athlete, literally just yesterday, and I said, when if 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 an agent were to come to him and say, hey, let's go to lunch, while he's a student at a college uh, at the university he plays at, the NCAA is going to come in and be like, you guys got now, you guys are breaking all sorts of rules. We got to revamp right. this. You got to cut scholarships or whatnot. Whereas if I was an undergrad in his position and I did, wasn't a college athlete and a potential employer takes me out to lunch. Yeah. And says, hey, I want to get to know you better. Like, maybe you guys can work with us later on or whatnot. There's not, I mean, what's going to happen then? We could both be on scholarship, me academically, him through athletics. No, obviously, I'm not doing anything wrong with my life there. And I have a big problem with that. Yeah, you've been listening to Jay Billis. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, that is, you know, a lot of it stems, and I mean, you have to take into history into account. We're working on a me and a colleague up in Canada are working on a paper on it right now, looking at NCAA history and kind of the evolution of the field. And so the initial knee-jerk reaction is everybody, you know, if you look back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, you know, this idea of how to properly pay people has been going on for years. Um, the knee-jerk reaction was that, you know, we have people who aren't going to school here. We have people who, you know, are actually professionals that were paying to come back and play as ringers. We got people who, you know, one instance there's a football team that was would fly a dude in from Iowa on Saturday to play football and then let him go back home. Yeah, <laughs> nothing to do with the university. Um, you know, and so you start seeing those sorts of things happening and the initial reaction is, well, well, we got to come in and we got to impose rules. And then you see it evolve to the point where now you have agents. And, you know, I, I don't... You know, I'm a cynic by nature, and I'm pretty negative on life. Uh, <laughs> but in general, you know, I don't think that all the rules, you know, that, you know, you've got the, you know, the Drake groups, you've got the, you know, even the CSRI groups, um, you know, faculty across the country, you know, claiming and yelling and, you know, pundits, the exploitation of this, and it's not fair. I think most of the rules are evolved out of a real problem where they are trying to solve uh, an issue that, and weren't looking to figure out how to ways to disadvantage. I think it was started with, you know, one they were going to protect their own interests, but two, you know, there were some sinister things going on, like, you know, athletes getting caught up with, you know, the mob, uh, you know, the gambling issues. Right. The, with uh, what university was that again? The uh, that's oh. kind of what Goodfellas. There's a. The movie Goodfellas yeah, 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 is kind of based off of that situation, roughly. Right. With the, was that Rutgers? I think it was Rutgers. That's what was coming to my mind, yeah. actually. Yeah. But even with that, with uh, agents coming in, you know, you're basically being exploited by agents. Uh, this, you know, started was starting seventies, eighties type era, whereas you know, agency became an issue, and then so you got guys coming in and they're signing these contracts. They're ignorant 
of what it is, and they're basically getting exploited by agents who, you know, I don't know if you watched the movie Straight Out of Compton, but it's yes, very yeah. similar to you know, you sign this deal and it makes it seem like it's all right. Well, you know, you're signing like forty percent. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's just a rough example. It's not right. accurate, but um, you're you're now all of a sudden you're indebted to somebody, and what happens if you get hurt and now you owe somebody two hundred thousand dollars and you're so I think there was a protective level there, um, but what's happened, as with anything, it goes to the extreme, and it gets to the point where we've legislated, 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 and at some point it's like, well, you know, you've got stuff in for like, you know, let's call it the outliers. You're really disadvantaging the core group of people thinking of way to stop the outliers, you know, the tenth of a percent people. Right. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of this, where we start seeing the breakdown in the rules and the enforcement is that we've had knee-jerk reactions to situations that have happened that are only affect really a few people. And what happens is that we lose sight of the bigger picture and see that, oh, you know, there's other variables that go into this. And I think, I mean, it's the same way with anybody. I think it's very myopic whenever people start thinking about uh, how we want to pay athletes. You know, yeah, it seems like, it's, oh, yeah, we need to pay athletes, blah, blah. Well, you know, really, you know, if we're honest, if we went fair market value, free market, there might be, there's probably less than 50, you know, athletes across the country that are worth, you know, whatever fair market value you right. put on them. More than what they receive through yeah. the university they're attending, through scholarship money and things like that. And I'm uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, that athletes are being exploited and, you know, that we need to do more. You know, we do a hell of a lot for them. Right. I mean, they have services that we don't have, that y'all would never have access to. Um, they have, they don't go hungry. I mean, and they have meals and they have training and they have somebody... You know, they have free tutoring. They have people who are looking, you know, advisors who are dedicated solely to them. They get to travel the country. They get, if they take advantage of it, they get an education that is going to come out, and they're relatively debt-free. Not to mention the social capital that comes with it of being an athlete on campus. Now, there's some negatives that come with it as well. But in general, you know, it's kind of a, a, it's a thing. It's a big deal. So this idea that they're being exploited, you know, I don't want to... I kind of back off from that really. It's a really hot word. Yeah, you know, it sounds sexy. It's a great sound bite, and it's going to get right. You know, we could sit here in your podcast. We get, you know, professor at Texas Tech says athletes are exploited, (laughs) and we could, you know, we just say exploited, 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 and all of a sudden your listenership is going to go up. Right. But I'm not really. That that might be kind of nice, though. I know, right? (laughs) Start getting some sponsors on it just (laughs) by saying exploited. Yeah, exactly. We should. uh, Somebody should take out the copyright on that <laughs> right so anytime you say it, get a royalty there you go but I, I, I'm uncomfortable with that I, I like to you know I don't want to I don't want to act like you know there's everything's perfect and that something doesn't need to be done but you know I think there's a society I think we need to kind of and as the pundits and I respect and have a brain crush on Jay Billis but those types of people it's like you know Let's tap the brakes and let's let's not you know just go zero to a hundred you know let's go right. like maybe zero to fifty mm-hmm. you know and let's start with there. I like that approach a lot. I think that's the safest way of going because, like you say, these are mainly outliers that we're focusing right. on. You're talking about Johnny Manziel and Cam Newton, right? Right. They're they're worth you know you know Johnny could have come out of Texas A&M. He could have probably been a millionaire every year he was there just on jersey sales and likeness issues. Okay? Right. Um, you know, you're talking about. Uh, I would even wouldn't even say it's people like you know college basketball players anymore because they don't have time to get a cat the cachet up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're talking about those you know basically quarterbacks of really good teams or you know Derrick Henry type. Right. Um, after that, it's like. You know, I don't really know about that. So it, then the big question becomes: Do we revamp the rules to help these guys? benefit uh and that may affect more things across the board that then all of a sudden you have to address and it kind of reminds me of the fab five documentary Mm -hmm. with uh chris weber in michigan and and there's that part in the documentary near the end where he's next to a sports writer mitch album they're kind of just you know walking down on the street and he sees his own jersey the number four for michigan 
and he just kind of stops and says, I mean, this jersey's worth like literally costs $70, something like that. And I'm not going to see a dime of that money. And you do, it kind of like resonates with the viewer yeah. and they really kind of tug at your heartstrings. You're like, wow, that's so sad. And then you look at Chris Weber now and you're like, what are we really making all this think about? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's the, that's the issues. I think that's ultimately, you know, you look at the O'Bannon case and the Keller case, that that's probably what's going to end up happening is that athletes will, will, will move more towards them, you know, getting access. And I think you're going to move towards deregulation uh, instead of like sweeping regulations. I think what will happen is that eventually, and it's starting to move that way, you're going to start seeing more probably of an Olympic model of doing things where they can, you know, make money off their likeness, um, but they're not going to be able to make money. You know, the schools aren't going to be able to pay them. And honestly, I mean, in my opinion, that's probably the best approach. That's probably the safest approach. Yeah. You know, it's a very fine line if we, and the NCAA has fought this, universities have fought this, and, you know, the advocates for this, I don't think, think this through enough. Uh, it's a very sticky situation if we start calling athletes employees. Because with that comes a lot of negative, uh, it comes some positives, right? So you're now, you have workman's comp. You, well, under Obamacare, they're going to have to do, uh, they'll have to provide insurance. Mm -hmm. um, you'll get some sort of salary, you know, whatever that looks like. You know, all that stuff sounds really, really good. But then you forget about, oh, now I'm going to have to pay taxes. Um now, you know, there are, you know, real life instances, you know, whenever I, you know, am I going to get fined? You know, what happens? Are, are we going to have to unionize? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a big thing, you know, because now how are we going to negotiate this? If I am an employee, um, you know, who's to say now if I'm getting paid solely to play football, and I want to go to school to get my degree, but I have football practice. Now you start losing this idea that, oh, you know, you have to, you can't miss class for practice. Well, you know, I'm paying you, you know, 30000 a year plus your class and then plus all this other stuff. Uh, you know, you're going to be a practice. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't give a damn about your sport management test. Right. You're going to be a practice. And so I think people start, they don't, think that through. If all of a sudden we go to the employee-employer model, then what happens to the sports that don't generate revenue? Exactly. You know, yeah. uh, volleyball, you know, most of your Olympic sports, you know, golf, soccer, you know, softball, you know, baseball on a lot of campuses, you know, all your, you know, women's, uh, you know, women's basketball, you know, then you start having the Title IX issues. Mm -hmm. Are we still part of the university? Because if you're part of the university, you still have Title IX. So people, I don't think, really think this whole through, if we're, this whole thing through. If we're going to call them employees, it, it raises a bunch more issues where if you do something simpler, as you say, all right, well, you can't make money off of us. But what we'll do is that if you if there is a fair market for you outside of this where somebody's willing to pay you, you know, $25,000 to come shoot car commercials, you know, yeah, we can live with that. You know, because then it still maintains the relationship and it, it keeps, you know, that's that's what happens with Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps makes no money off of swimming. He makes money off Subway. Yeah, you know, the endorsements. And Speedo and right. all that sort of stuff. And, you know, yeah, there's some, that's sticky. There's some situations. What if all of a sudden you were a Nike person and your school's an Under Armour school? Mm, you know, good point. You, you've got that sort of sticky situation, but you've got models how to deal with that. The NFL deals with it. Uh, even the NBA deals with it. Um, so there's those types of things, but I think that would be probably the most, that'd be the best compromise, right? Is because it also doesn't disadvantage anybody. So if you are on the soccer team, and you're, you know, the one of the top goalies in the country, you know, maybe now Mizuno pays, sponsors you and gives you a check to wear Mizuno gloves. And now you can be showcased as opposed to being hidden on campus. Right. So I think that sort of situation would probably, you know, provide the most opportunity for people. You know, and then the, 
Sorry, I'll keep going. I told no, you. Please, I got, no, please, no. This is this is why we brought you <laughs> right. on. I think this is great. And so then what you'll have is you'll have the critics say, well, that just means that, you know, what's going to stop somebody, you know, the boosters of some university coming in and saying, well, all right, well, then we'll just give everybody, you know, we'll just pay everybody on your team and we'll shoot commercials with them and they'll be that, it's their external endorsement. You know, what's to stop that from happening? I'm like, well, first off, it's, there's, it's probably happening under the table now anyways. <laughs> Good and point. Then, and then two you know, you look at it, the teams, and we talk mostly, this is a football conversation, a basketball conversation. The teams that have traditionally been good are always going to be good because they always have the most invested fans and they have the most invested resources. So, for instance, Alabama football is always going to be good. So if you take this idea that all of a sudden, oh, that's going to, you know, make it where people don't, you know, that – Going to kill the meritocracy. Yeah, type of well, it's it's going to. There's not going to be any competitive balance. Competitive balance. Alabama's won the national title. What, you know, four out of the last seven years. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Nike has been trying to buy national championships up in Oregon for the last, you know, fifteen twenty years. They're getting damn close, but they it's not happening. Uh, what's his name up uh, up at Oklahoma State? Gundy. Mike Gundy? Yeah, no. Oh, you're talking about T. Boone Pickens. T. Boone Pickens. Right. T. Boone Pickens is trying like hell to buy a national right. championship in football, and we see where that's getting them. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, no matter what, there's one T. Boone Pickens at, at Oklahoma State. There's one Phil Knight at, at Oregon. There's about 37 of those people at the University of Texas. Right. You know what I mean? And so the, the same with those types of – so everybody who is anybody in Alabama that has money is, going, is contributing to that, right? right. And so Alabama is always going to be good. So I just don't – I don't see it. I see it as a fear tactic. Oh, then they're just going to – people are going to go crazy. Like, well, if people want to be stupid with their money, then that's their business, right? If Bart Rager wants to, you know, pay Pat – you know, $25,000 to come, you know, sell cars. There's no real evidence that shows that that actually works. Um, so if they want to be stupid with their money, is that all Is all of a sudden Texas Tech going to outdo Texas and all of a sudden going to become this great powerhouse because we have a few, like, well, yeah, we might get a few more recruits, but at the end of the day, for whatever Texas Tech is willing to do, they're big money oil people at Texas and Texas A&M. They'll just say, oh, that's cute. We'll do that on the scale that you can't match. Right. And so I just don't – I don't see that as a valid excuse for doing it. Well, and and even extending off of that, we – that is uh, legal in the professional atmosphere. Yeah. And it doesn't work for every team then either. Right. I mean, look at the Yankees. The last time the Yankees won a national cha- – or, sorry, not national championship, World Series, obviously, right. 2009 – and then before that, it was like 2000, I think it was 2000. Right. And so, I mean, it's, and obviously they're Look known to be. Anaheim, the Angels. Right. I mean, yeah. they, they got the one of the biggest payrolls in baseball and can't make the playoffs. Right. But, you know, let's, say, let's, let's go back to apples to apples type comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, the Raw School here on campus is pouring a ton of money into facilities, recruitment of people. And this is the business the college business school, to just business specify college, him. Yeah. Uh, they're building a new wing that's going to have all these great things that we heard about in the faculty senate. And yeah, it's great. Um, but at the end of the day, all that money that we're doing over there, is that going to make it for all of a sudden the top flight students in not only uh, Texas but the country come here? Hell, let's, let's try and keep the region together, right? Mm-hmm. Does that mean all of a sudden they're coming here? I just, I just don't buy it. Right. I, I don't buy it. I think that – I think it's, you know – Everybody, you know, it's just the it's the fallacy of reductionism, right? Well, if if we do this, then all of a sudden that thing over there that is the scariest thing ever is going to happen. Come on, let's tap the brakes a little bit on that. Right. The ROI is it's too fickle. Right. You can't predict any of that anyway. At the end of the day. I mean, yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. Yeah, Bart Rager might be able to do that, and then all of a sudden when he starts realizing this ain't helping me sell cars. And it's actually costing me a lot of money. Do you know what's going to happen? He's probably not going to do it. Right. You know, if, you know, there are very few people in this country that have bottomless pockets. And the people with bottomless pockets, you know, worked their way up to earn that money and tend to be fairly smart business people. Right. And, and good with their money. And right? good with their money. And 
if they're not, eventually it runs out anyway. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right. So I just don't see it as this giant devil that it would be painted out to be. Now, you know, the NCA doesn't want to do it because that's going to cut into their pockets. And ultimately that'll cut into university pockets because now, you know, instead of the donations coming to them and that money coming to them, well, now a chunk of that's going back to the athletes. Right. Um, and when you start taking money out of anybody's pocket, you know, granted they're naturally going to get really defensive, even if they're claiming that, you know, they're there to help you make money at some point. So, I mean, it's, there will be, there'd be resistance to it, but I just don't think it's the boogeyman that everybody thinks it would be. Yeah, no, I think those are, those are some good points you were making. Uh, changing gears a little, I want to, I want to ask you how much, it's kind of a twofold question, maybe how much the NBA's decision to essentially not draft straight out of high school by changing the age to 19 how much has that affected the situation we're seeing now with college sports and kind of these 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 Wiggins type of athletes that come in and and people are just waiting for them to just do their one and done with Kentucky as the factory of that anyway uh, how much has that affected the the argument we're making today and would that change anything if it and and what is what does the NBA get out of doing that too that's a, that's another big question I have for you yeah you know the I'll start with I don't know um, on the first part, what, how does that factor into it? I think what the problem that we have right now is, you know, I study institutional theory, this idea that when things are ingrained and they're structured into us, and this is just what we do because it's, you know, it's, it's just what we do. And it's just this idea of, you know, this is the way things are, so this is the way things are done, and then we're just going to keep doing them. Why do we do it? Because that's just what we do. Um, I think that the biggest issue is that we still have a institutionalized society when it comes to sport, especially when you talk about basketball, that the you grew up your whole life thinking, oh, well, I'm going to just work hard and go to college, and then from college I go to the NBA. Well, I think what the NBA, so keep that in mind as I go on my little rant here. <laughs> um, so the NBA made that rule. What they get out of it is they get a year of free to them publicity and they get a year of somebody being of, of more evaluation time against comparable athletes. So if you're drafting all these people, cause what was happening is the product in the late nineties, early two thousands was becoming really watered down mm-hmm. because you know, you're starting to, you're drafting on the, we call it the nasty P word, the potential Right. And you're seeing, you know, people come in and you're like, well, they look like they could, they are NBA players, but they've been playing against, you know, guys like me. <laughs> it's like, like, yeah, of course he's six eight and can jump through the roof. Of course he's, you know, shows potential. You know? Right. Um, and there's no real proof. So what was happening is is getting watered down. The Kwame Browns of the world, the, uh, you know, people like Jonathan Bender, you know, uh, just a few names that you could throw out there. Uh, it was just it was the product was getting watered down. So what they basically said is like, no, you got to go to college so we can at least have a year to evaluate. And on top of that, it gives them a year that if they are good, you can start building the hype. And now all of a sudden you have a brand that's starting to build. So from a marketing standpoint, that's what they kind of get out of it. Um, what it has done to college athletics, especially college basketball, it, it has made the product, uh, you know, damn near unwatchable because you have – People coming in, you don't have time as a fan base to invest, um, or as a casual fan base. You know, the the Kentucky people are going to be there regardless. Um, but you don't have time as a casual fan base to invest and to get behind a team and watch them grow for years and, like, oh, see an end game here. You're like, well, they're all going to be gone in six months, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have that. You've got lesser skilled players, so you're having to play, you know, because if you show any potential as a freshman now, you're boom, you're gone. So you have lesser skilled players playing against lesser skilled players uh, against people who have, you know, if you're not a freshman or a sophomore and have make it, made the leap and you have to stay through your senior year, you're more skilled, but you're not as good of an athlete. So the product has gone, has just become unwatchable. And then don't get me started on NCAA officiating. <laughs> but so the products become unwatchable. What I think the next wave that we're going to start seeing, and this is a matter of people you know maybe we don't see this but if 
when people start realizing and start thinking out of the box, I think what you'll end up seeing is probably more people following the Brandon Jennings, Emmanuel Moutier uh, path, and they'll go, you know, spend a year overseas being a professional overseas and then coming back over and playing. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's ideal for the NBA because it doesn't, that's not, you know, localized marketing, but at least they'll have tape to evaluate. Right. Um, I think what would be interesting to see is I don't, we talk about this over in our office a lot. Why do aren't athletes, you know, basketball players, why aren't they just going to the D league for a year instead of going to college? So does that same rule not apply to the NBA D league then? I don't think so. I think it's interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. It may or may not, but that's what we ask. Right. You know, we don't know. Yeah. The, that's not where we know the inner workings. Well, there's so many questions. There's so I many mean, questions, right? But why are we? Why are they not doing that? Why, you know, why didn't Wiggins try and just say, "Look, I'm gonna go, you know, play, see if I can get on, catch on with the D League team, have a, go to an open tryout." Right. And obviously, he would have made it instead right. of spending a year at Kansas. Well, I think it's just because it's ingrained in us that that's what you do. You go to college, and you know, what, there's not really an alternative until st- people you start seeing the model works. Like, oh, I'll go play in China for a year. I'll go play in Italy for a year. Yeah, I'll play against other pros. You know, what would be really interesting to see is if, because of the way it works over in uh, overseas, is if you start seeing kids leave high school, you know, as freshmen and sophomores, and go start getting into the club team system, and start playing overseas from you know the time they're sixteen. You know, you see that like Ricky Rubio was a pro since he was sixteen. That's right. Um, and if you start seeing that sort of situation, I think that's where you know the products. I actually think the product would be better for the for the NCAA because now, you know, maybe you would have fewer one and dones, and you wouldn't be quite as good at athletes playing. But at least you would have people who are sticking for a while, so there's something to invest in. Absolutely. But and uh, you know that's actually something that baseball, the major league baseball, has been doing for years. I mean, you talk about the young pros, uh, Bryce Harper was already in college at like 16 because he just wanted to speed through high school, just streamline that. He graduated from high school, and then from there did semi-pro, was right. – or sorry, not semi-pro, but he was doing the college and then got drafted when he was 17. Right. And it just really takes that one person for basketball to kind of that one iconic figure. Yeah. You know, the other thing, though, is, you know, until the D-League – and it's getting better, right? But – Major League Baseball has had the minor league system instilled for, mm-hmm. you know, you know, hundred years. Right. And so whenever you have it that instilled inside that, and there is a there's an alternative. So if you go out of high, so you either go to as baseball players, they get to go, they can go straight out of high school, they can go get drafted, or they wait three years. And so if you go and you get drafted, you have automatically there's a place to put you. Right, and that you can develop. I mean, you're going to be in the minor leagues for even if you go out of college, you're going to be in the minor leagues for a few years. So that just gives you time to be a professional and be in college, or and they have a place to put you. There's no real minor league system for you know basketball. The D league's getting better, um, and there's certainly not one for football. You know, that's the you know the NCAA football is the minor leagues for the NFL. So. Uh, so before we finish up here, I actually you you kind of teased some research that you were working on with a colleague in Canada. I was hoping to maybe get a little bit more of a preview on that without compromising your research, obviously, but maybe something give me and uh, some of our listeners to look forward to in terms of what you may be looking into. Uh, you know, we're looking at you know, there's a basically what we're looking at is how the NCAA is has done things that other entities and businesses haven't been able to do. It has been hotly contested since it was basically established. And despite, you know, people critiquing it and calling for and it being attacked on various levels, it has stayed in power and stayed in control of a field that has only, you know, like 11, 1,200 schools in it now. 1,200 member field, it's been able to maintain control over that for the better part of a century. And other university, or not other universities, other entities have tried to do that even to a slightly smaller degree and have failed. We're, what we're looking at is we're looking at the theory and the, the constructs of what they've been able to do to, you know, not fail. And so, I mean, there's a few different things that, you know, we found that, you know, they 
are pretty reflexive. Uh, the biggest thing is that there's nobody, there's no alternative right now that anybody can think of. I mean, if they're not, you know, universities don't want to do it. You know, individual universities don't want to, you know, Texas Tech doesn't want to have to get on the phone and schedule all this stuff and then coordinate with, you know, you know, the other, you know, let's call it 75 comparable schools mm-hmm. to figure out how they're going to do a championship. Well, we got an external body that handles that for us, so we don't have mm-hmm. to put resources to our, towards it. So there's not really an alternative to it. So we're looking at how they basically, you know, in the early 1900s up through the 1940s, you know, froze out all the competition, if you will, to now it's like, well, there's really nobody else who's going to take, take over it. So all we've got to do now is just kind of keep everybody happy. And, you know, we're looking at ways that they've done that. Interesting. I've never really thought of that aspect before. I mean, you think about kind of they've monopolized college athletics and, and that technically should be illegal. But then it's it's a really weird situation because a lot of people look at the NCAA and immediately kind of tie it in with the government entity when it's not related at all. And maybe is it because they're, they're beyond approach from the government because people like the one body that governs all the sports to make it so it's like more competitive and there's going to be one champion and, and that's all that matters. Whereas if you bring in other entities to kind of help govern more schools and it's all of a sudden you've got four different championships from four other divisions of whatever organization. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, so to the scale that we do it, we're really the only, you know, uh, the only country in the world. There's some others. I think you know, Canada does it a little bit. But we're the only country that really does large-scale college athletics. And so I think the issue is that that our society, that's just how we do amateur sport. You know, am, amateur sport in other countries is like you're involved with clubs and you do more recreation type stuff. And then if you want to do competitive, you're in, you know, the Bayern Munich club. And so you have different levels. Of, you have the professional, you know, you have the top tier and you have all the way down to the youth level. Um, so we're the only real country that's tied in, you know, athletics within the realm of education. And so I think it's more so that, you know, that we can't get past as a society. We don't, we don't really know or, you know, envision another way of doing things. We don't have another theory of how to do college athletics. And I think what the NCAA has done is it's come in and it has provided something to, you know, wrangle and, you know, because we are a society that we need to see winners, we need to see champions, and we need to see what it, you know, we need to find out who is the best, and that's what's ingrained in us. And the NCAA provides a legitimate outlet for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that it blow it would blow people's minds, it blows society's minds, you know, uh, you know, because that's what we do. We do college athletics. Well, if we don't have Alabama football, what are we going to do in Alabama? I mean, I think that's kind of where it is that, you know, the NCAA provides a legitimate control over, over it, if you will, that has brought everything under. And it's a convenience level now for universities that, you know, it's a hindrance, but at the end of the day, we don't have to devote somebody to, you know, calling in, you know, and help coordinating with everybody across the, the country. Like, well, we've got a governing body that does that. We don't, and we've got a governing body, body that polices it. Right, and so I don't have to. Poli- we don't have to at Texas Tech. We don't have to police Baylor. Baylor's there's a policing entity on Baylor, whether they do a good job or not. You know, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the that we don't know the we don't have the you know the academic term. We don't have another theory how to do it. And so I think the NCA just provides legitimacy to that yeah. in our mindset. And since there's no one else, you know, they vanquished the NAI. You know, AAU was a competitor back in the day, and now they're not really a thing. Um, you know, even college athletics is even bigger than the Olympics in this country probably. Right. Um, so you start looking at, you know, the way they've been able to position themselves, and now that's how we do amateur athletics that has led to their longevity. Yeah, some really interesting points, actually. I'm looking forward to that once it that's uh, so. good bathroom reading. <laughs> well, even that. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much, uh, Dr. Knight, for coming with us. Uh, before we formally end, I actually want to get more background info on you because we kind of just went right into it, which was good. I was glad because it was kind of an organic yep. approach. But uh, I want to hear your path uh, after playing 
D two basketball at um, Abilene Christian. Mm-hmm. You then went on. You you said you even finished your senior year at another another college. Right. Yeah, I mean my path is not that dissimilar from you know, and, it, and my path actually shaped my research that has evolved to and what it is now. Um, I came through college, first generation, no real clue what you know college even was. Picked a major that one of my coaches was doing because I thought, well, you know, I don't really know what I do. I guess I can coach. I play basketball. You know, you're an athlete. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the natural progression of things. And so I went with a, you know, major that I just picked one that was like, oh, I'll do exercise science. Not there's, I'm not disparaging the major, but it's not, you know, it's not physics. Mm-hmm. Um didn't have a clue really what I was wanted to do. I think it's honestly, I think it's unfair that we make you know eighteen year olds define a path. You know, I don't think it's <laughs> unfair to make a twenty year old do it. Um, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I was playing basketball. So I played basketball, poured all my energy into that. I uh, graduated from Hardin Simmons after my last year there um, with a degree in sport fitness and leisure activities. Do you know what you can do with that? Not much. <laughs> so I went and worked at the local YMCA back where my parents live up in Amarillo. And I knew that I was better than that. Not I'm, I'm not trying I'm like not disparaging, you know, those types right, of things. Right. But I knew that I was, you know, I had more in me than that. Uh, I was I was always been pretty smart and so I was I uh, felt like I was selling myself short. So I was like, well, hell, you know, I'm good at school. I'll go back to school. So I applied at a, bun- a couple of different – I applied at two schools. I applied at University of Texas. I wanted to do uh, sports psychology, got denied because um, I didn't have a psychology background. And then I was like, well, you know, I was thinking about applying to a place like North Texas, maybe Texas Tech. And then I was like, well, my dad's like, well, you should apply at A&M. Because, you know, in our state, A&M is always very highly regarded – despite what the tech people may think. <laughs> Still, it's it's seen, it's got a very good national reputation. Mm-hmm. And so I went, I was like, well, they don't have a sports site. Well, I guess I can do the sport management thing. And so apply, get in, get there. You know, I always kind of had the back of my mind after do, uh, chatting with my advisor that uh, at Hardin-Simmons that I might want to, you know, do the PhD thing, be a college professor, because I saw what they got to do. I liked the idea of, you know, working with and molding kids at the college age because theoretically you are more mature. And then theoretically, theoretically. you are more <laughs> mature. You know, you kind of got, you know, it's just less BS. It's more like we get to shape lives. We don't have to, you know, hug and stuff like that. But I was there and the research aspect, whenever they start telling you what it is a PhD is, because as a master's, you kind of poke around and it's like, well, I don't really want to do that. You know, because it's intimidating. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, I don't really want to do any of the sport management stuff either because, you know, there's, you know, I don't mind working, but I don't want to work, you know, 80 hours a week. I don't want to, you know, go make, you know, 20 cents on the dollar to pass out T-shirts and, you know, never have any free time and always be grinding. That's just never been my style. So I did the, the most logical thing. I went into high school coaching because that's not a time commitment or a grind <laughs> at all. Um, and so after my master's degree, I went and I got a coaching job uh, in Waco at a uh, 4A school. I guess it's 5A now. Um, and lead uh, as one of the top varsity assistants had my own team as a JV coach didn't have to coach football which in Texas is ridiculous as your first job coming out taught PE and health and saw that really quickly about six weeks in I was like nope not for me (laughs) you know I enjoyed the coaching parts of it at some points but you know it just wasn't I I couldn't be up all the time and then and so I was like I bit the bull I was like you know what I'm going to do what I originally thought I was going to do. You know, I'm smart enough to do it. Let's go do it. So I went and started my Ph.D. at A&M after my one year of coaching. And my path, you know, I didn't really have any idea. I was like, oh, let's do a Ph.D. And I had my advisor, uh, there were some struggles with him as an advisor. I think he could have pushed me harder. But the thing I'm always indebted to is that he, you know, he let me figure it out. And so what we did is, you know, I started, I had no idea what I really wanted to study. 
and I started gravitating towards this college athletics realm because I was thinking about all my own experience that, you know, I'm and I watched, you know, guys I played with had no idea what they were going to do when they came out. You know, I've got a good friend of mine who's, you know, I guess I'm 33. He's 35, 36 years old. Is about six hours short of getting his degree, and you know, has been six hours short for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And it's just he didn't really. You know, he put, he went to school to play basketball, and then he's, like, left with this huge void in his life. And so, you know, I started, like, well, let's talk about this identity theory and this role theory and how, you know, we're in this role and we're engulfed and it's our identity. And, you know, then all of a sudden one of my advisors turned me on to, you know, looking at the structure of, you know, the structure of college athletics and how athletics run and how it might lead to more of that. And from there it just evolved into now it's, you know, let's talk about the field more so than athletes at the micro level. That's still interesting to me, but, you know, it's hard because, like I said at first, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't want to play the part because I don't buy into it anymore of the poor, pitiful athlete. Your life is terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, we're so disadvantaged. Yeah, there are some struggles. I didn't get to do internships. I didn't mature fast enough because I was too busy practicing instead of thinking about what I was going to do with my life afterwards. But, you know, I had a pretty cush gig, you know, it wasn't. It was really. It was hard, and I earned it. Mm-hmm. But you know, you know, six a.m. workouts, getting yelled at for no reason, you know, that sort of stuff. I earned. I paid my my dues. So I'm not, you know, saying that it wasn't without you know blood, sweat, and tears. But it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't that bad. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so, and it's opened up more doors and opened up more friendships and relationships than I ever would have had if I hadn't played. Mm-hmm. So. I've I gravitated away from that, and let's wanted to look more at kind of how things stay in place, and that's kind of where I'm at now. You know, it's it's an evolving process. That's exactly. I try not to curse too much. <laughs> well, Doctor Knight, thank you again. Thank you again. No, I appreciate uh, you having me. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, no, and your your insights have been incredible. So uh, we'll go ahead and sign off. <laughs>